continue our study tonight as we were studying this morning and the last two Sundays on questions. The questions are asked for various reasons, sometimes to seek information we don't know, sometimes to answer another question. We'll see some of that in our study tonight. And sometimes merely to provoke a thought. Jesus both asked and answered questions. And in the last two studies, last week and the week before, we talked about questions that Jesus asked. And we looked at a number of questions that Jesus asked. And this morning we began to look at questions that Jesus answered. And we looked at eight of those questions this morning. And tonight we want to continue that study. And so I encourage you to get a Bible and let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. And if we did this morning, we're looking at the context uh, where the question was asked, the answer that Jesus gave since he was the one asked that question, and then we pursue some application of that question. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22. This is a familiar question to all of us. In Matthew chapter 26 and in verse 22, the question asked of Jesus is, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Well, let's set the context so we can understand the question. Beginning at verse 17 through verse 25, we have Jesus and his disciples observing the Passover. As they are observing the Passover, notice at verse 21, Jesus announces that one will betray him. He says at verse 21, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Let me get the picture. All of the disciples are sitting around. We know who that is. But if you were sitting there, you may not fully understand what Jesus is saying. That one of you sitting here is going to betray me. And so in verse 22, all of them, not just one or two, but all of them, notice verse 22, they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? I get the picture that one would speak up, Lord, are you talking about me? And another one saying, Lord, are you talking about me? And another one saying, Lord, is it, is it I? And another one then saying, Lord, is it I? You say someone will betray you. Who is it that you're talking about? Are you talking about me? So let's see the answer that he gave. In answer to the question, he said at verse 23, it is the one that dips his hand into the dish. Now all of them may at times have lifted dip their hand into the dish, but here is the point, that as Judas reaches into the dish, at that point Jesus says concerning the man that puts his hand into the dish, it's that man that will betray me. Now notice that Jesus goes further to show the severity of the betrayal. At verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be good for him that he had never been born. What Jesus is saying is this is not a minor infraction. That when one betrays me, it would be better if he had never been born because if he had never been born, he wouldn't have a soul that might be lost. But now that he's lived his life and he betrays me, he's going to indeed lose his soul. So Judas asked at verse 25, he said, Rabbi, is it I? Are you then talking about me? You have announced someone will betray you. You said it's the one who puts his hand into the dish. I was doing that. So I'm asking now, are you talking about me? And Jesus said, you have said it. In other words, yes, I'm talking about you. Now I know the context and I know furthermore something of the answer that he gave. Let's talk about the application. That anytime a statement is made concerning the Bible truth, we ought to be able to make personal application. That's what each of the disciples were doing. 
they were saying, does that apply to me? Rather than saying, I know that applies to someone else, but I know it doesn't apply to me, each of them was asking, does that apply to me? We ought to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. And so here is the question we all ought to be asking. We should always be asking, does that apply to me? Is it I? Well, let's take some for instances. Some people are not diligent as they should be. Not all Christians are as diligent as they should be. The question is, could that be me? So when I come across a passage, it talks about a lack of diligence, a lack of growing, a lack of developing, a lack of excitement, a lack of enthusiasm, or hear a sermon or a class about that, I need to ask the question, could that be me? Lord, is it I? Some are in spiritual danger. At any moment in time, we could preach to a crowd and talk about some of you are in spiritual danger. The question is, Lord, is that I? Is that me? Could I be the one in spiritual danger? Could I be in danger of losing my soul? Some people are not growing as they should. Others are growing as they should. Lord, is that me? Could I be the one that's not growing and developing? I'm not studying as I should. I'm not stronger now than I was a year ago or five years ago. We might need to make the point that some are neglecting their faith. Lord, could that be me? In any group of people of this size, someone perhaps would be neglecting their faith. Could that be me that's neglecting my faith? Maybe I'm the one that's neglecting my faith. Some are weak in their marriage relationships. They're not what they should be. They're not growing. They're not working in their marriage so that they're trying to be the husband or the wife they should be. Lord, is that I? Is that me? How am I doing in the marriage relationship? A lesson about personal application. But let's come now to a second question, and this is found now in the book of Acts and not in the Gospels, though it was a discussion of Jesus, and you'll see the context in a moment. The question is, is it at this time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? This is found in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 6. So let's trace over to Acts chapter 1, and we'll notice in verse 6, but we'll notice something about the context before we come to verse 6. What is the context and what is the setting? This is the time that the disciples are spending time with Jesus for a 40-day period after his resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead, but that 40-day period before he ascends to heaven, notice verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, that to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What all did he say? I'm not sure. But we would obviously harmonize with anything else that had been taught about the kingdom in the previous studies, that is, previous to this point in the Gospels, and anything after the Gospels that would be said about the kingdom. Now I want you to notice that verse 4 and 5, they were told uh, to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. That is, he's telling them and teaching them about the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart for Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so during that period, he teaches about the kingdom. And he said, I want you to wait in the city of Jerusalem, and you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit while you're in Jerusalem. Now then, I want you to notice verse 6. They asked the question then. If you're wanting us to wait here in Jerusalem for the power of the coming of the Holy Spirit, then is it at this time, Lord, that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? They had, as we mentioned this morning, a material, literal view of the kingdom. 
But Jesus is going to establish a literal kingdom on earth. He's going to sit on a literal throne. So is this what you're talking about, Jesus? You want us to wait into Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come up on us. You've been talking about the kingdom. I want to know, is this the time at which you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So what did he say in answer to that? Well, let's see what he said. First of all, his answer was, it's not for you to know the times of God. Look at verse 7. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. There are some things about time and there's some things about God that it's not for you to know. There's some things that belong in the realm of God about time that God hasn't revealed. It is not for you to know. That seems like a strange answer. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then just notice at verse 8, he said, here's what, what, what you need to know. You want to know about the time, that's, that's in the field of God. But, he said, you'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what he had already told them in 4 and 5. And you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they said, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said two things. He said, concerning time, it's not for you to know the times of God. Secondly, you'll receive the Holy Spirit and be witnesses. That's what I've already promised to you. That's what you need to be doing, waiting in Jerusalem. So wait in Jerusalem and you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's make some application of the answers that Jesus gave. What do we learn from that? Well, I learned from that that often our questions are based upon misunderstanding and assumptions. Sometimes one of our puzzles, and we're puzzled about some question or about some passage, or, or maybe there is a question that we have that we can't seem to come to a conclusion about that often the problem is that we're basing that question upon a misunderstanding or an assumption somehow. Something that's not revealed in the scriptures. That was the case of the disciples. I wonder if this is the time you're talking about you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. It was a misunderstanding. Based on a misunderstanding. Based on an assumption. Furthermore, I want you to notice Jesus did not directly answer their question about their misunderstanding. He had already, back up to verse 3, taught about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Perhaps he thought that his teaching should have been sufficient to tell them the kingdom is not a material, literal kingdom. Maybe that's why he didn't answer. But he did not directly address their question Concerning their misunderstanding, he said two things. It's not for you to know the times of God. And what you need to be focused on is waiting in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm learning from that. There may be times we need to delay an answer. Don't always feel compelled when someone shows some misunderstanding about a concept that you need to jump with both feet right on that misunderstanding. A delay of that answer may be better. It may be that you've already given them sufficient information. They can come to that conclusion and they haven't come to that conclusion yet. But Jesus delayed his answer. He didn't talk about that at this juncture. Here's something else I'm learning from that context. The matter of time and when about things that God has not revealed is left to God. When is Jesus going to come back? When is the second coming? How long will it be? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons of God. And here's another thing I'm learning from that. We need not be concerned with what we don't know. But we need to focus on what the Lord has told us to do. You see, they're asking about something they didn't know. When, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That hadn't been revealed. 
even if that was going to be the case, that had not been revealed. Don't worry about things you don't know. Focus on what you've already been told you need to be doing, and that is wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit in the city of Jerusalem. So instead of being puzzled about things that I have no clue about, Instead of searching for answers where there is no revelation from God, I need to focus on what God has told me and just be busy doing what God's told me to do. Here's another question. Third question. Let's go to John 9 and verse 2. Who sinned that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let's go to John chapter 9 and look at the context. As Jesus passed by, he saw a a man who was blind from birth, the text says. They saw a blind man. There was a common misunderstanding among the disciples, as was true among other godly people, and I emphasize this was even among the godly, that sin is punished in this life, thus any suffering in this life is because of some wrong. And you say, that's a silly observation. Well, maybe so, but the disciples had that misunderstanding. They saw a man blind and they said, Lord, tell us, was this man born blind because of what he did or what his parents did? It's got to be one or the other. The the blindness came because of some sin that someone committed, him or his parents. We see that's the same concept that Job's friends had. You remember that? Job's friend said concerning him, you've done something wrong or this would have never happened to you. All this calamity never would have happened to you. It was because of some sin you've done wrong. You've done something. We don't know what you did, but you did something. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were good godly men who taught good Bible doctrine. They just made misapplication of that. They just misunderstood that concept. In Luke chapter 13, we see that kind of, I'll not take the time to develop Luke 13, but verses 1 to 5 shows that that was a misunderstanding. Do you think these were worse sinners because of the calamity that happened upon them? No, I tell you, you need to repent. So that was a common misunderstanding some had. And so that's why they asked the question. So now notice at verse 3, here was their question in John 9 and verse 3, uh, or verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? It's got to be one or the other. Now we know why that question was asked. What was the answer that Jesus gave? Look at verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents. It wasn't his sin that caused his blindness. It wasn't his parents' sin that caused his blindness. Well, then what about his blindness? Look at verse 4. But that the, verse 3, that the works of God should be revealed in him. And I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now what has he just said? That he was not born blind because of the sin of his parents, not because of his own sin. He was born blind that the works of God might be displayed and might be shown. Then notice beginning at verse 6, Jesus healed him. He used the opportunity of the blind man and sped up on the ground and made clay with his saliva and anointed his eyes and the blind man with clay, the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam and he came back seeing. And so indeed he was healed. Now let's make some application from that story. What do I learn from Jesus answering this question? Who sinned so that he was born blind? Here's what I'm learning from that. God does not punish immediately in this life. There's no evidence of that. We saw that in the book of Job. We see that in Luke chapter 13. We see that right here in John chapter 9. 
So what do I conclude from that? Well, there are some who assume that if they're suffering, they must have done something wrong. Or they assume if someone else is suffering, they must have done something wrong. God's punishing them in this life. On the flip side of that coin, some assume if all is going well, God must approve of them. I must be doing all right. God's blessing me. I'm well blessed. Things are going well in my life. God must approve of what I'm doing or I'd be suffering somehow. You see, when we suffer tragedy, sometimes we ask, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do so that God did this to me? This tragedy befell our family. And what, what did I do so that I deserve this? And the answer is, you've done nothing to deserve that. And I'm learning that from John chapter 9. Here's question number 4. Question number 4 is from Luke chapter 2. Let's back up a little bit to the early part of the life of Christ. And the question is, why have you done this to us? Why have you done this to us? Let's go back to Luke chapter 2 and put that in its context. Luke chapter 2. Beginning at verse 41 through verse 50, Jesus at the age of 12, along with his parents, go to the Passover in Jerusalem. And that context is found, as I've already mentioned, verses 41 to 50. Now I want you to drop down with me to verse 43. Luke chapter 2 and in verse 43, the text says that when they had finished and they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother didn't know it. And so as they leave Jerusalem and they're making their way back with a great throng of people, Jesus lingers back in Jerusalem. Verse 46 says they searched for him for three days, looking among the crowd, making their way back to Jerusalem. And notice at verse 46 and 47, when they found him, they found him in the temple, listening to the teachers and asking questions. Look at verse 46. When they found him, they found him sitting in the midst of the teachers. Here's the teachers of the law. Both listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47 said, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Here's a 12-year-old boy asking the teachers of the law about the law. And there is this discussion going back and forth. And they are the ones who are impressed with this 12-year-old boy's answer to the questions that they may have asked. Jesus was asking and answering questions again. So now notice at verse 48. When they came to him, his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Now I know the context. They're making their way back from Jerusalem. They've lost him. They look for him and they find him sitting in the temple. And the mother says to him, why have you done this to us? Now what answer did Jesus give to that? Verse 49, he asks them, why were you searching for me? Look at verse 49. Why is it that you sought me? Did you not know? Then we'll finish that question in a moment. But as if this were on tape and we stopped the tape at that moment, and what, what does that imply? The fact that he said, why were you searching for me, did you not know, implies you ought to have known where I would have been. And so why were you searching for me? You ought to know where I might be. And then he goes on in verse 49 and verse 50, that you know that I must be about my father's business. Why have you done this to us? Well, you ought to know where I might have been. And furthermore, I had to be about my father's business. Now, let's make some application of that. 
What could we learn from that? Well, here's what I learned. An explanation of our actions should be that we're about our Father's business. That anytime someone may ask, why have you done that? Why have you done that to us? Why did you react that way? Why did you say what you said? Why did you behave as you did? Why did you not do what you did? And the answer should always be, I'm about my Father's business. It may be that we're asked this question by those who think they are a victim. That you're sometime, somehow doing them wrong by your actions. And that seemed to be the mother, wasn't it? Go back to our text in verse 48. The mother said, why have you done this to us? You see, your father and I are victims here. You have done us wrong. You have somehow done us in a way, and we want an explanation. Why have you done this to us? And the answer was, I was about my father's business. It may be a family member will ask you sometime, why are you doing this to us? Why are you putting us through this? And it may be you're trying to do what's right and they are objecting to your doing what's right and why are you doing this to us? When you may take your stand against them. You may somehow deal with their sin or you may say that you're not in agreement with what's going on in the family. You may say, I'm not going to go to this this social gathering because I don't agree with what's going on, the drinking that's going on there. And they may ask, why are you doing this to us? They're the victims. The answer is you're about your father's business. It may be a fellow worker or a boss who asks, why are you doing this to us? When you say, I won't agree with that, I won't go along with that. I I can't participate in that. And the question may be, why are you doing this to us? We're the victim. And the answer may be, I'm about my father's business. It might be your child's coach when you tell them they're not going to be at that game because it conflicts with service. It might be the school who doesn't understand why you're taking the child out of something. And they may be playing the victim. And why are you doing this to us? The answer may be, I'm about my father's business. Here's question number five. Question number five is found in Luke chapter 10. And that is, do you not care my sister left me alone? Go to Luke chapter 10. And let's look at this context. Luke chapter 10. Beginning at verse 35 through verse 42, Jesus is at the house of Mary and Martha. He is visiting in their house. He is a guest in their house. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, Luke chapter 10 and verse 35 beginning. The text tells us, or verse 39 rather, At verse 39, I want you to notice that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. I get the picture as they're sitting in the house. Jesus is sitting there teaching and expounding. And Mary's sitting right at his feet, glued to him, listening to every word he said, taking in his instruction and his teaching. Now Martha, according to verse 40, was distracted. You might underline that word distracted with much serving. There's nothing wrong with what Martha is doing. What Martha is doing is not immoral. What Martha is doing is not sinful within itself. But she is distracted away from the teaching of Jesus and she's busy about serving her guest. The text says she was distracted. And she approached the Lord with this question in verse 40. And her question is, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. 
I'm busy serving, I'm preparing food, I'm getting food on the table, and I'm busy about doing all these things that are so important, and she's sitting there listening to you. Do you not care that she left me alone to serve? Tell her to come up here and help me. Do you not care that she left me alone? Now let's see what the answer to the question was. Jesus said in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are troubled, the New American Standard says, bothered by many things. You see, you're, you're anxious and you're troubled. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. You're letting the material things, the earthly things, the things that are less important, bother you and stir you and you're all uptight about the worldly kind of things. Not sinful things, but things that pertain to this life. You're bothered and you're disturbed. Look at verse 42. But one thing is needed. The New Century Version says one thing is important. One thing is important, and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. In other words, she chose what is important. You're busy about things right within themselves, serving, and that's very important. But she has chosen something far more important, and that is listening to the teaching of her Lord. And so what was his answer to that? Well, the problem is you're really disturbed about things you'll not be disturbed about. And really the thing that's really important is the very thing Mary has chosen. No, I'm not going to tell her to leave this and come and serve at the table. So let's make some application of that. What do we learn? Here's one of the things I learned from that. That often we are troubled and we are distracted with things less important. Just like Mary. Nothing wrong with what Mary was doing, but she was distracted from important things by things that were less important. Maybe we're distracted and we are disturbed and we're worried about things less important. There are many choices in life and we must choose the good part. Go back to verse 42. That one thing is important or needed and Mary has chosen that good part. See, Mary had a choice. Mary could choose to help serve or she could sit at the feet of Jesus and she chose the good part. So there are a number of choices in life. For example, we need to choose the spiritual over the material. Material things are important, but not near as important as the spiritual. We might need to choose the future over the present. We might not need to think about the future, the impact of my action, rather than the present impact of my action. And I might need to choose the future over the present. I might need to choose Jesus over fellow man. The spiritual over the social. That's what Mary had done. And I might need to choose the word of God over doing that which is good. What Martha was doing was very good, but listening to the word of God was far better. I might need to choose the word of God and listening to the word of God and trying to get understanding from the Lord over doing something good within itself. I might need to choose my soul over my body. Good choices need to be made. Question number six. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Question here is, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Now let's put this into context. This is in the context, Matthew 19, beginning at verse 16 through verse 22, of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler wants to know about eternal life. He came to Jesus and said, good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Jesus answers him by saying, keep the commandments. And he said, well, which ones? And Jesus enumerates them. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth up. So Jesus answered to him, what you need to do is keep the commandments. He said, I've done all of that. Then he asked this question. I want you to notice it in verse 20. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? 
I want to have eternal life. In fact, Mark's account said he come running to Jesus. His eagerness to know the answer to the question. I want to know what I have to do to have eternal life. What, what can I do to have eternal life? Please tell me. Well, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? Well, I've done all of those. Is there anything else? What do I still lack? Now, let's notice the answer to the question. What did Jesus say in answer? He said, there's one thing you lack. Now, let's, I want to notice the parallel accounts. Look with me over to Mark's account. They both say essentially the same thing. The wording is just a little different. Turn over to Mark chapter 10 and in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. And it's interesting, Mark's account says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And his answer was driven by love, and he said to him, driven from love, there's one thing you lack. Let's go to Luke's account. Luke chapter 18 now. And I want you to notice in verse 22 that Jesus said, you still lack one thing. What do I still lack? You lack one thing. You still lack one thing. And so Jesus said, well, there's one thing that you lack. And what is that? Let's go back to Matthew's account, verse 21. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, why did he tell this young man that? Because I don't remember another occasion where he told someone, you need to sell all you have and give to the poor. And then tell someone else, you need to sell all you have and give to the poor. And then tell someone else, you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor. It's because Jesus understood this young man was wedded to his material goods and had to separate from them in order to have eternal life. Now, there's one problem you still have. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. Look at verse 22, that he went away not willing to do that. In other words, I'm not willing to do that. I, I thought I was interested in eternal life. I wanted eternal, I come running to you asking about eternal life, but if that's what it requires, and that's the one thing, I'm not willing to do that one thing. Now let's make some application of that. What do we learn from that? I'm learning from that, that we ought to ask the question, what would the answer be if you were to ask, what do I still lack? If you could talk directly to the Lord, and the Lord would thunder an answer out of heaven, and you would say to the Lord, Lord, I'm trying to keep your commandments, what do I still lack? What would the answer be? What would the Lord say to you? What would the Lord say to me? Though here's one thing you're still lacking. Here's one thing that you're not doing. So what is the one thing for you? What is that one thing? You see, the one thing for me may be different from you. You see, mine would not be probably selling all that I have and give to the poor, but it might be something else. And whatever it is that he might say to you might not be what he would say to me because what I'm lacking may not be what you're lacking. What is your one thing? What would the Lord say to you? Here's one thing you still lack. What is that one obstacle standing in your way? Jesus saw that the material goods and his love for material goods was the obstacle he couldn't get over. You got to get rid of all that so you can get through. What's the one obstacle standing in your way? Good question, isn't it? Here's question number seven. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. The question this time is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Let's look at Luke chapter 10 and talk about the context. What's, what prompted this question? Well, look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and 26. A certain lawyer stood up testing Jesus, said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Not the same circumstance in Matthew 19, but a similar one. And he said, what is written in the law? What, what is your reading of it? You tell me what the law says. And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the answer to the question was to love God and to love your neighbor. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you shall live. Pretty simple answer. Love God and love your neighbor was the answer to the question. Then I want you to notice at verse 29, the lawyer wanting to excuse himself raised the question, who is my neighbor? Look at verse 29. Verse 29, wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now when the text says he was willing to justify or excuse himself, it is not suggesting that he has a genuine question. Lord, you say love your neighbor. I want to know who my neighbor is because I want to make sure I'm loving my neighbor. That's not his question. His question is who can define neighbor? Neighbor is so vague. And so the law says love your neighbor, but who can actually say who your neighbor is? Is this man my neighbor or is that man my neighbor or is that one over there? So how can you really define neighbor? You see, that law is just really impossible to keep and really know if you're keeping it because who really is your neighbor? He was willing to justify himself. What did Jesus say in answer to that question? Well, he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. He didn't say, well, let me define neighbor. The, the Hebrew word for neighbor means, and then he defines it, and therefore now we know who your neighbor is. He said, let me tell you the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story well. There's a man who fell among the thieves, and here come by priest, passed by on the other side, a Levite passed by on the other side. They neither one helped. There was this man who was a Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, verse 23, had compassion on him and took care of him. And then Jesus raised the question. He asked the lawyer, who was neighbor to him? You tell me. You see, Jesus answers a question with a question. Let me tell you a story. Now, you tell me, lawyer, which one of those three men, was it the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan that was a neighbor to him? You want to know who is your neighbor? You tell me who's the neighbor. And his answer was right when he said, it's the one who showed mercy. Verse 37. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. What an answer he gave. Let's make some application of that. The application that we can make of that is there are some questions that are intended to skirt the law. That's what this man was doing, wasn't it? Oh, I know the law says love your neighbor, but I don't think we can define neighbor. No one can really be clear who neighbor is. So therefore, that's a law that we can just kind of overlook because there's no way to clarify it. When we come to passages like 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about it's a shame for a man to have long hair. One of the questions about that is, how long is long and who's to, who defines long? How do you know what's long and what's short? How do you know? In other words, that passage is meaningless because we can't figure it out. That's the point in raising that question. We're trying to skirt the law, you see. The same thing with modesty. Who is to define how short too short is? How can you figure that out? You see, that's too vague. We can't figure that out, so we can't make application of that. We're doing the same thing the lawyer did. The same thing with divorce and remarriage. We have been told repeatedly through the 90s that the teaching of Jesus lacks clarity. In other words, we can't figure it out. There's no way we can know who has the right or not. Jesus was kind of unclear, so we can't really figure it all out. So all of those questions are designed to skirt the law. We, can't, we don't have to fulfill the law because we can't figure it all out. That's what the lawyer was doing. See, the question was not so much of who is my neighbor, but how to be one. See, he's focusing on the wrong thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. The focus is not on who is your neighbor, but how to be a neighbor. 
That's where the question was. And the lawyer had missed it. But neighbor is anyone who is in need. Let's go to the last question now. Let's go to Luke chapter 13. And the question this time is, are there few who are saved? Are there few who are saved? Let's look at the context and see what prompted that question. This is in a greater context of Luke chapters 12, 13, and 14. In that context, there is a great deal of rebuke to the Pharisees. There's a great deal of teaching concerning parables, numerous parables all through Luke chapters 12, 13, and 14. So that greater context of rebuke and teaching. Jesus was making his way, according to verse 22, to Jerusalem, the text says, journeying toward Jerusalem. And in that context, now he was asked a question. One said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Perhaps that was prompted by some of the other teaching. What all had he said in his teaching? I know some of the parables revealed in chapters 12, 13, and 14. But there was other teaching that was done that's not specifically stated in this context. Perhaps that was prompted by some of the teaching that Jesus had done throughout these three chapters. The question is a good question. Go back to verse 23. Are there few who are saved? How did he answer that question? Well, look at verse 24. His answer was, yes, there are few to be saved. He said, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus, are there few to be saved? And his answer is, there's going to be a whole lot of people trying to be saved and they won't be. They're going to seek it the wrong way. So yes, in answer to your question, few will be saved. Beginning at verse 24b now, through verse 30. The opportunity is going to soon be gone. They will seek, verse 24b, to enter and will not be able. What do you mean? Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. And then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, but uh, where you're from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And there will be weeping and gnashing when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom, and you yourselves are thrust out. What's his point? His point is the opportunity is going to soon be gone. You have the opportunity to be saved, and yes, only a few will be saved, but the opportunity to be saved will soon be gone. That's his point. Now notice beginning at verse 31. At verse 31, then some of the Pharisees came and they said to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. What they're trying to do is drive him toward Jerusalem where he would be killed. In other words, what I'm learning without reading verse 32 and 33, his message of a narrow message was rejected. So Jesus, is your teaching narrow that only a few will be saved? Yes, only a few will be saved. And I want to tell you, the opportunity to be saved is going to soon be gone. And they rejected that message. Now let's make some application of that. What do we learn? I'll learn that only a few will be saved. I saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Wide as a gate and narrow as the way. So only a few will be saved. And the question is, will you be among the few? I'm learning something else. That there is the opportunity to be saved... And it will, the opportunity to be among that few is going to soon be cut off. 
When will it be cut off? I don't know because I don't know when I'm going to die and I don't know when you're going to die and I don't know when the Lord's going to return. So when is that opportunity going to be gone? I have no idea, nor do you. And I learned from this that a narrow message will be rejected. Don't be surprised when someone asks you a Bible question and you give them a Bible answer, they reject it because it's way too narrow for them to accept. Because they're the ones who ask, well, if you be saved, you said, you're right. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he said. And don't be surprised when you teach a narrow message that it too will be rejected. You see, Jesus answered questions. We noticed eight questions this morning, and we look at eight tonight. Questions like, Lord, is it I? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Why have you done this to us? His mother asked him. Do you not care my, mother, my sister left me alone to serve? What do I still lack and who is my neighbor and will only a few be saved? I haven't gone back to count, but one author I consulted in putting this material together said Jesus was asked 113 questions. I'll take his count. So you think of 113 questions, we've only looked at 16. There are many more questions that Jesus was asked that he responded or maybe on occasion refused to answer. He did that on more than one occasion. Didn't answer. Didn't deserve an answer. There may be one or more present this evening who is not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand, while we sing?